I want to make sure that before I forget to tell you, because at the appropriate time I may forget, um, Kay at, at a certain point in her homework lesson for chapter four, or for lesson four, she said to you to go into your how-to study book and look at how to handle prophecies. Did you guys do that? Because what happened is we have in chapter one several cross-references back into the Old Testament, correct? Now, when we looked at those cross-references, who were those, cro- those pa- Old Testament passages speaking of? Jesus, right? That makes them prophetically, when they were uttered, a, a prophecy for the future, correct? It was a revelation of who Jesus Christ would be and the things that he would do and the, the power that he would have, the positions that he would have, who he would literally be as called the Son of God. So those were all stated and uttered through the prophets in, in the Old Testament as a, as a uh, foretelling, correct? Therefore, when you look at them, it's important so that you don't get confused about what's going on there, that you understand how to handle prophetic utterances. So in your how-to study book in chapter 10, I think it's chapter 10, let me double check that, yes, in chapter 10, it's called Unraveling Revelation. Now, it's specifically written to address revelation, probably for obvious reasons, it's one of the most you know, searched upon uh, uh, prophetic uh, writing in the New Testament. But it applies, the principles of how to handle prophecy are, are going to apply um, to any Old Testament reference to Jesus that even though now it's fulfilled, when it was written, it was still prophecy, correct? So if you have not looked at this, I highly recommend that you go into chapter 10 on your how-to study book and read how to handle prophetic utterances because we have quite a few of them right this week and we're not going to spend a great deal of time on that today but I'm going we are going to have so many prophetic utterances that we're going to be looking at through the whole book of Hebrews because this is going to come up over and over again this is important for you to at least be familiar with go back and read what it says one of the great things is she gives a I don't know if it's eight or ten, it looks like eight, principles to how to handle uh, prophetic utterances. Important guidelines, she says, if you want to handle the prophecies in the Word of God accurately, the following guidelines will give you some important parameters. And so she goes through and explains that to you. So I want you to look, look that up and read that so that you're familiar with it, okay? All right, so that's your little 101 for the morning. All right. <laughs> I always have to do the training as we go along or, or we sometimes forget. Okay. I wanted to get that done first. All right. So now what we're going to do uh, today is we are looking at um, the introduction of this book in chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, at uh, Jesus, who is better than the angels, right? And the subject, and in chapter one is Jesus referred to as Jesus, no, he's not. How is he called in chapter 1? The Son. So in that, I, we've spoken about this a couple of times, but these titles, whenever they are presented in Scripture, in the context as they are brought up, the specific titles that are used to identify God the Father or Jesus 
or the Holy Spirit. These titles are significant to insights about what is going on in the context of what is being said. So when we look at the title, the Son, what we need to know then is what does that mean, the Son? What, what are all of the ramifications of that name? Have you ever thought of that verse that says, if you, pr- if you pray in my name or ask in my name, I will give it to you? So what does that mean, in my name? Well, it's the names plural, of God and all that that entails and means. So when you pray, you pray with an understanding uh, that God is not only Savior and not only Comforter, not only Healer, but He's also the Judge. He's also the Righteous One. He's also um, uh, the one who is sovereign over all affairs. Whether And whether you get the answer you want or you don't want, as according to as you're praying, you have to understand that he is he has this bigger picture. He is the one who sits upon his throne in the heavenlies. He acts as our intercessor between us and God the Father, and he looks out for our best interest. So as you pray to God, you have to have all these parameters about in his name, correct? So chapter one, the name that is used here first and foremost is the son, correct? So we want to look at his identity in chapter one from that. One of the things that Kay asked us to do is to make a contrast um, again, to bring out or to restate for ourselves. uh, I think it was on page 17, day one's homework. What is the contrast that is given to us about his identity in chapter 1? Or what is the contrast that God shows us about him in chapter 1? That he is much better than the angels? That, okay. In Long ago, he spoke to the fathers through who? Through the prophets. But now he speaks to us in these last days. How? In his son. Now, it's significant that there's a different usage there through the prophets and in his son, right? Did you come to at least evaluate a little bit the difference between that? What does that mean in the son? How is that significantly different, right? Did y'all kind of ponder on that a little bit to say, you know, it's interesting that he used through the prophets in the first part of that, but he says in the son in the second part? Oh, it is. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I didn't know that, and I never caught that. I hate that when the Greek does not. In the prophets, in many portions, in many ways. Okay. So, all right. So just skip my whole question. How do you think? He, okay, but it, the, the question still stands in that. My question is, how does he speak? In Jesus, in these last days, what are the various ways that we see him doing that? Correct? Is that, is, is that not a question that would come to your mind when you say, well, he, spoke, he had spoken in the prophets, now he speaks in the Son? So what does that mean, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay, so in that way, that is one demonstration of how he spoke in his son. Okay, he did it in an action then, through a, through a 
execution of a certain activity, correct? Okay. The other way in his son is what the son says and does is what God says. There you go. I loved that. One of the references we did go to this week has, has it shows that he does nothing except that he hears the father first, right? So he only does what the father does. He only says what the father has said. And so he, and in that regard, what does that show us then about he and the father? that they are one, that they have a one-minded agenda, that together they are in oneness on these things. Okay, so let's go and let's start by just, because we want to, we, I've made the stress that there's an importance about these titles that are given to us. The very first word in here is what? When you open chapter one of Hebrews, God. So the first thing we want to do is let's get a, a word definition. Whoa, I lost my equilibrium a little bit. Okay, God in one, one. Did anybody look that up by any chance? I I know it wasn't in the homework. I'm just curious. Did anybody happen to, because we did talk about it last week a little bit too about how important these titles are. Did anybody happen to do do a word study? Okay, I'm going to share it with you what I came up with and you can go on and do your own as well. It's the word theos or theos. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Noun, male, and it's and it's the supreme deity. Or divinity. And it translates as God. Now we did a couple of cross references, uh on page 19 and 20, where we looked at how God introduced himself when he first became introduced to the Israel nation, right? We did that in, uh, we looked in Genesis 1.26 and also in Exodus 3.14 and 15. I want to put those points up here about who God is, because he actually, besides this, this particular title of God, the divinity, the theos, then he goes on to explain from the, uh, in Genesis beyond the theos that he is divinity, right? He's also something more. And how does he describe himself in those two passages that we looked at? Well, in Genesis 1.26, the us, he says, let us, right, make man in our image. And that tells us what in that statement about God. It's a plurality statement, isn't it? That there is obviously more than a singular, it's a plural. Now, we did, you know, in, Gen, in Hebrews chapter 1, do you, how, how many parts of the Trinity are, are we being introduced to? Two, two very clearly, the Son and the Father, correct? Later we will see the Holy Spirit come up, and we have certainly seen him in many other writings, like, you know, if you go into John or, or even into Acts, the Holy Spirit is, is obviously present. But here what we see, he tells um, Israel when he introduces himself to them, the, the we and the us, in, let us make men in our image, is introduced to us right away in Genesis that he is a plurality of a God. There's a pluralness to him, 
all right? Then he later, we go and we see that Exodus passage that I was just mentioning about when he introduces himself to Israel, how does he call himself there? The I am, right? So God lets him, uh, introduces himself as the I am. Does anybody know anything more about that? That they want to... Mhm. It sure does, doesn't it? And yet what we know we know is that God when he speaks to Moses in these other passages about him being called the I am he says tell them that the I, that I am sent you right when they ask who is who is the I am or who it, who is this God who is sending us who is telling us to follow you Moses out of the the captivity God said tell them I am sent you so with the, with these couple of pieces of information, what we what we have been able to do at this point is say we see that God is introduced in this picture, and through our first cross reference that He's a plurality God, and that He is referred to as the I Am, the one which was introduced right away in the beginning of the writing of uh, Genesis, which is the beginning of our history about who God is, and, um, you know, I always tell everyone when we study that book, you know, the biggest, the big picture in there is uh, Genesis is teaching us who is God and who is man, and specifically who is man in relationship to God, right? And so that's what the whole book of Genesis does is lays out this understanding of who is God. And so he, throughout that book, presents himself piece by piece, introducing himself through these varieties of his name. So it's really insightful to understand at this point, just as a point of foundation, because we're going to move in a little bit uh, as we move on now in this conversation, we're going to move on and we're going to build upon these two points, that he is a plural God and that he is called the I am. And now we're going to move into the sun and try to develop our understanding of who the sun is as well. So we now know the word God, the, uh, that he is our he is the, the divinity, that he is plural, and that he is the I am. Now, how has Bo God spoken to us in his son was a question that you were asked. So let's see if we can build some information on that. Tell me what you see in verse 2 about how God has spoken in his son. Because we just talked about that a second ago. How has God spoken in his son? Okay, appointed, heir of all things, in verse 2, very good, and he made the world through him, in verse 2. Move into verse 3 now. Get a couple more points, and we, then we're going to talk about some word studies that you did on these. Okay. He is the radiance of God's glory. 
verse 3, and he is also, uh, right, he is the exact representation of God's nature. All right, so those are the statements that have been given to us. So now, once we get at this point, we're going to just do a pause before we continue with the list making on this. Uh, we want to do just one more point after this. But first, I want to stop while we're, while we're looking at it and identify these, these words. What does it mean that he is the radiance of God's glory? What does that word radiance mean? All right. So it means it means to reflect or shine forth or out outflash out or outray or out yes uh, to flash forth. Very interesting. Yes, Carol. Well, did did he not? Okay. There you go. I was going to say, is it only a visibility of something shiny that this is making reference to, or is it more than that? Okay. All right. What else? I I love the. I mean, because these are some. If 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 you're not wrapped around yourself almost in trying to get through some of this, then you're not thinking hard enough. Because this one is this is very challenging. Yes. Yes. Does it go on to say give any context to that? How that glory is revealed. Is it, what else is talking, what is it talking? Well, the word became flesh, but then, uh, okay. Um, grace, you know, his fullness and whatever, but not really. Grace and truth and so forth. Okay. Well, okay, think about what it tells us in John chapter 1 about um, who Jesus actually is. What do we see in, in those verses that you looked at in John chapter 1? What did you learn? It was it was John one, and then you dropped down to fourteen to get your your full interpretation. So, who is Jesus according to that? He's the Word of God, and then he is in fourteen. He's the Word of God that what became flesh. And do you think the very act of becoming flesh is part of revealing God's glory? Does that in any way reveal to you the glory of God? And when it talks about a fourth shining or a or an or an uh, a brilliance or an if that word that interesting word if effulgent, okay, I had to look it up. It just means the brilliance of God. Okay, so 
maybe the next part of that verse will better explain it because I think it builds upon it. It's not exclusive from the next statement. I think the two of them go together. So the next part of it, it says that he is the exact representation, right, of God's nature. And so what does that mean, representation? Okay, an exact reproduction. What else? I'm sorry. Say it again. An impression. Okay. Now, this, was, this is really a tougher one to fully grasp our heads around because for us, the idea is that if you make an impression of something, then you get two of it. Right? And you make another impression and you get three. And you make another impression and you get four. So the idea of imprinting money, for instance. But in this particular reference where God says that let us make man in our image, where we're speaking of God the Father in this triune uh, entity that he is, that he's one and yet he has three, three distinctive roles or, or um, functions, basically, that, that in the way that he presents himself to man, in the way that he deals with man, he allows himself this, this threesome. And in this, it's not that it, that it has been created, but that it has always been, right? And so he says of himself that, he is the, that Jesus is the radiance. In other words, he is God who is radiant, and in this case, he says he's also, I love the, the original word of this, by the way. Did you look at the exact representation? Did you see the Hebrew uh, transliteration of that? What is the word? Character. Isn't that interesting? So this is talking about his nature, right? And that's why it comes along about God's nature. He is the exact representation of God's nature. So in that, you talk about the character also of God. So if he is God's radiance and he's God's character and he's exactly as God is, he is God and he is emitting this or radiating or presenting that glory to us. Yes. Okay, but I, in my mind, I went to the word character because of the original Hebrew. Yes, in essence. So he is God's essence. He is God's glory. He is God's character. He is God's uh, basic brilliance in, in the way that they have defined this. So this is, yes. He is. Okay, and, and, you know, and I hate that word adequate, and yet, because, again, then we can start arguing about, okay, what does that mean, right? It, can, you, can you not see how difficult it is to unravel the idea of the, 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 the concept of a tri- triune God who has three distinct roles or offices, and yet they are one? It is a, it is a challenge. Yes, Carrie. That's exactly where I was wanting to go next. So let's put that up there. He who has seen me 
is what scripture tells us. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And that is in John um, 14, 9. So would you say that gives a proper interpretation of understanding of what's being stated here? That he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. In other words, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one, correct? He says that in another one. Let's put that on here too. I and the Father are one. And that's in John 10, 30. Yeah, 30 to 33 is the fullness of it, okay? All right, now... In order to then take this to the next place, let's go on down to verse 3 and finish out what we were saying. Who is he? As God has spoken in his son, appointed heir of all things, made the world through him. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. And what else does he do? (laughs) Okay. And who is the he? He is Jesus. He upholds. He upholds what? Oh, I got the wrong paper here. Hold on. All things. By the word of his power. Now, who is his? Pardon? That's right. It is Jesus. Now, we had a discussion about this in one of our other groups, and I'm, and we're going to go back to this. And um, I wasn't ready to go into all the, you know, the discussion about it. But there was a back and forth on this because in this flow of uh, conversation in this particular verse, it makes references back and forth between Jesus and God the Father, right? And, then, and it looks like it should be uh, consistency in this. And yet, what is being described up here is how God has spoken in his son. So these, what is being said then is, what is Je- who is Jesus? He's being identified for us. So when you get to this last statement, it wouldn't be that Jesus upholds uh, things by the word of God's power, but by his own power, because we're describing who Jesus is. And what we're trying to do is is reveal his deity, right, at this point. It's, it's a revelation of who Jesus actually is. Now, consider our audience. Who is our audience? These are the Hebrew believers who, who have come, come into faith, who are confessing that Jesus is who? The Messiah, the Son of God. And so this author, however, we'll see it later on, but he's rebuking them a little bit, talking to them about the fact that they should be teaching this stuff by now. They should not. And I'm laughing to myself. I'm going, I've been doing this a long time. I don't know if I can always teach all this. This is really tough. I mean, really, it is a tough subject to handle. And yet, part of this is by faith, we believe this. We believe that it is true that God is a triune God and that Jesus the Son is equal to God the Father, that he is that exact representation. He is the radiance of God because he is God. Now, this text goes on to tell us that, does it not? What does it say to us in verse 8? And what does it say to us in verse um, 
um, nine. Uh huh. Your thr- his throne is forever and ever. And what does he call him? Oh God. He says your throne is forever. So I'm going to put that on here as an identifying marker. His throne is forever. He is God. Is that and that's in nine, correct? In eight. Okay, one eight. Okay, so. He, he tells us what is true about him as far as his identifying marker in this point has to do with something external. But then what he does is by establishing this external thing that his throne is forever, and then he identifies him, he is God, right? To support your point on uh, Yes. Very good. Excellent. Let's go there. I don't need to teach you guys. You guys have got this. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go to Colossians 1.15. This is on page 21. And what does it tell us there how he supports that he upholds all things by his power? How do we see that in Colossians? What does it say there about him? By him what? All things were created. Okay, and... He, okay, I love the fact that it says also that he is before all things, right? He is before all things. Now, that statement is also going to come into play when we move into our next part of our conversation. So you might want to just kind of make yourself a little note about that, that he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. I wish I had thought of it. I just did. When we were doing our Genesis study, there's a um, cool little article that came up that shows the molecular level, I think, I can't remember if it was of our blood or of our material within our body. There are these little chains that hold us together, and each chain has a cross on it. It's a cross and a cross. Every one of them are a cross, and and they consider it the glue of the body. And I thought that was interesting that even just down to the very level of us individually, not just the whole universe does he hold together, but when you bring it all the way down to you personally and individually, the glue that holds you together is little crosses. It's just the coolest thing. Just came to my mind. I remember that when we were studying our Genesis um, 1. Okay, uh, in him all things hold together. That's in Colossians 1.15. Okay, 1 to 17, thank you. I knew it was more than that. I was ballparking it. (laughs) Okay, now, let's take this back then and kind of make it full circle to the very beginning where we started about the fact that he is God, that God is introduced first to to us as being the one who is establishing... um, his word and that then Jesus is the word and the word became flesh, right? And then as we begin to develop our identity, our understanding of the identity is that he is God. So it's interesting that God establishes him and then he is God, right? So God is cooperating with God in all this. Okay, so now move into Isaiah 714. This is on page 20. This is another one of your cross-references. 
And it was accompanied with Matthew 123. These two together are going to give us kind of a, the, the finishing of the loop that takes us back to the very first point of this column. What does it say in, in Isaiah 7:14 of him? So, it, and tell me who's speaking. Who's speaking here? And what's going on? Uh huh. Okay. Yes. Okay. And he's saying about about this coming Messiah. What? Okay, and his name will be Emmanuel. Now, we move into Matthew where we see this prophetic utterance fulfilled. And what do we see in Matthew about this? And Emmanuel is translated God with us. Now, I got to tell you, if you're a brand new Christian and you're trying to put all this together, that would be quite a feat without a lot of help. But isn't it awesome how Kay has given us curriculum in one lesson where, it, honestly, if we got just this much done today and that's all we really comprehended, we have accomplished a huge amount of insight about who God is already, who Christ is, who is the Son. The Son is God the exact representation of God, because he is God. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. I love that. I don't have room to get that on my board, so you guys just make sure it goes on your notes, okay? All right, so now then the next part is we're going to look at uh, the part where it moves into about um, what, what did the son do? So that's our next question. What did the son do? All right, so what do we see him doing in chapter 1, starting in verse 3? We're still all the way up in verse 3, believe it or not. Okay, so when he had made... Now, this is very interesting because he makes a statement as a... As a uh, if you put a clock on it, it's something that's been accomplished, right? So when he made purification... He sat down at the right hand of God, or uh, of the right hand of the majesty on high. All right, so that's in verse one, uh, 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Okay, so it talks about that now. So when he, when he did that, he sat down. I'm going to put a little arrow, an arrow down here because when he did this, he sat down, correct? Now, I, I know that this was um, a little extra homework. I'm looking for my lid. What did I do with it? So this does not dry out. Uh, well, I guess I'll just use it. Oh, I saw my pen. <laughs> Where are my earrings? They're on my ear. <laughs> I'm, I'm losing my mind. Okay. What I want to do now is... <laughs> oh, no. I'm just crazy. All right. It's lack of sleep. Okay. 
and age. <laughs> and probably blonde, that helps too. Okay. <laughs> okay, so he sat down at the majesty on high. So what I want to do at this point is get this much on our timeline. We want to timeline some of these events. You all were asked to do this, to take a look at each of these pieces of information that you see in here and do a timeline. Now, I kind of started this up here that we see that long ago, something happened, right? Long ago, what? He spoke through the prophets, right? Now he says what? In these last days, and we see and we see this as going forward, correct? So there actually is a very clear contrast there that what he did before and what he's doing now, correct? Now, uh, when you look at that, he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us. In his son. In verse 1, 2, right? So that's the cross. So that's where I start with my timeline. I put a little cross up on this long timeline. I indicate that long ago he had spoken in a previous way. And I indicate that in the last days he's spoken in a new way. And I, I put my cross on there and directly under it, I, I made myself a little bullet point that says he has spoken to us in his son now in these last days, right? So that gets us started. And then the next point that we've now looked at is that when he made purification for sins, and that, and that was a occurred when? When did he make purification for sin? I wish I had a red marker and I don't. I'll use, I'll use green. It's purification. Okay, so when he made purification, and we know that in order to make purification, what had to happen? The shedding of blood, correct? So he we can make ourselves a little, I like to do it this way, just visually. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Lois, you are so good to me. <laughs> okay, so he made purification, and then what happened after he made purification? He died, he was put in the tomb, and then what? In order to be at the right hand of the throne of God, he, there had to be resurrection. So we're going to put on here, resurrected or resurrection, and then he, he sat at right hand. I'm going to put just of God, if you guys don't mind me doing that, to shorten it, rather than of the majesty on high. Yes? Isn't that amazing? That really is an amazing thought, that, the, that Stephen was given that privilege of the heavens opening and him looking into there and seeing Jesus. There he was at the right hand of God. He was waiting for that first martyr of his church, his bride, to come. And in almost a statement of honor, doesn't it? Let me honor you for this which you are doing in my name and for my name's sake. I love that. That was a beautiful story. Okay, so he made purification. That's in one thing. One, three, then that he sat down at the right hand of God. So now we have this much on our timeline. And as we move into the next part of our understanding of this, I want you to consider what you're looking at here. Okay? All right. So little by little, we're going to do this very slowly. He says in verse 3, um, 
he had made purifications. He sat at the, at the right hand of God. Then verse 4, what are the first two words? Having become. Now this is, so here's a clock on the when he made purification, right? Then it says, having become. And I'm going to put another clock on this because it's a time indicator that something has occurred, right? That a process, a step, an event, something has occurred. Now, he says, having become what? Oops. Yes. Okay, he is having become as much better. than the angels and it says of him he what a more excellent name now this is where it gets tricky because it what are the complications that you're seeing here at this point are, are there any complications it can, can, it can suggest that something wasn't true before that now is true, okay? And if you consider that if this is all true about him, that he, he is God, has been God, and by the way, when we looked at that John chapter 1, when it says, and the word was God, the word was with God, when? In the beginning. So from the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, from before time eternity, God, Christ, the Son, was God. He was the Word, and he was with God, and he was God, right? And then God became flesh in John chapter 1. That's what that tells us. So if that's a true fact, that God, that Christ, the Son, has, has, is God, has always been God, right? Therefore, then when you move here, it says that when he made purifications for sins, he became something, something better. So w the complication comes in understanding that, interpreting that with, with the fullness of insight, right? Okay, that's right. That okay, that, that's not very interesting the, the, that, he, that the flash part has become better. All right. Is there a statement that we've already got up on there that shows us an indication of that flash part, that glory being revealed to us? What, is this, what does he tell us is the contrast between what he did before and what he does now? How about this? In these last days now, he's doing it in a, di in a different way, but it's through a designed, purposed plan, which is now being executed, and what happens when this has become executed? When Jesus went to the cross and died and he sat down at the right hand, what did the people of that day witness? When they saw him resurrected, what was proclaimed about him? That he is God and that he is someone special about being God too. He is God's what? God's son, God's Christ, the one promised, right? Yes, God's salvation, but specifically, he is, he is the son of God. By the way, when he was on earth, what did he keep proclaiming to the people when he was in, like when you look through the gospels, and as Jesus walked in his public ministry, what, who did he keep claiming to be? God, I am the I am, 
right? I am, he would say to them. And, uh, and some of the interesting insights of that is you see the Roman soldiers fall down prostrate when he said, I am. They understood he was saying, I am God. Yes. Yes. Very good. Excellent. We got here really easily. You guys are too good at this. Okay, so this having become, having become better than the angels and inheriting a more excellent name is not that he has made a change then, but that in history an event has, has occurred. It's an indicator of a time, it's a time indicator of a specific event. It's, it's quite actually a, a mention of something having been fulfilled. A con- uh, under what, which, which word? Having become? Okay. Accomplished. I'm going to write that on there. Something has been accomplished. So he has spoken to us in his son. He sat down at the right hand of God. And so having become... And then I'm just going to do that little dot, dot, dot again so that I don't have so much to write. But having become then better than the angels, that's a time indicator that, that an actual event has occurred and that from this point forward there has been a fulfillment of something, right? That And in that fulfillment then he has become better than the angels and has inherited a name which is more excellent than theirs, although it has always been true about him. So it's very interesting. It's kind of tricky. It's like that which was already true has now been realized in time in history, which that which was prophesied and, and known of him previously is now realized through the witness of us having seen his death, burial, and resurrection, or those who were present at the time having witnessed that, that death, burial, and resurrection. So it was always true, but now it's actually really true in history. Just kind of like the same idea, the same concept that, that from before the foundation of the world, right, Jesus had a plan for you, a plan of salvation, and it was established in the heart of God before even man was created. He knew before he created the first human being that he would need to have a savior. This plan of Jesus coming into flesh was in the plan of God before he created Adam and Eve. That's amazing. So that which was true is now realized in history. That's what was going on in this particular chapter. Yes, go ahead. Uh-huh. I love it. Oh, that is awesome. I need that. I need that written on a piece of paper for me. Oh, yeah, because that is, that is perfect. Who, whose uh, dictionary did that come from? Oh, okay. Which, which source? You don't know the source? Okay, but I like it because that's exactly what we're seeing here. This statement of having become means it's become reality. It's become a truth. That although it was a truth before, it is now a realized truth. I love that. That's excellent. Okay. Um, I saw some hands, but I don't know what they were. Oh, 
Okay. Okay. Well, you know, if you stop and think about this in the in the scheme of the context of this book, where these are the early believers, and they had they had been among the Jews previous to this, they had been among the Jews who worshipped um, uh, the coming of that Messiah, that Son. Now they're realizing that Son, and that's how he's having become at this point is a tr- it's a transformation point in history. It's an accomplishment. As mu- as a matter of fact, when you look back at the uh, principles for handling prophetic utterance of God, you're going to see that at, that at this point in history, some of those things that have been said by prophetic utterance, even some of the verses we've already, that we read this morning pertaining to what we're talking about right now, which is Jesus come to be that propitiation, to be that one who, who uh, provides purification. That part has been accomplished. But is there more to some of those messages that speaks of some things that are yet future? that are not yet fully accomplished. So what we're seeing is a partial fulfillment of, of these prophetic utterances concerning the Son. We're not at the fullness of all of it yet. Uh-huh. Yes. Right. It's the same source material that is being raised. Like it's the same thing. That led me to this idea. I think this may be why we get so much statements about not having engraven images. Absolutely. Yes. Well, and I tell you what, when you fully grasp that, then you get to the place where you, what you understand about committing murder, committing abortion, things like that. The reason you don't is you're destroying the image of God. And that's why it's such a a grievous uh, occurrence. We also know this, that in one of the references we looked at was in a Psalm that talked about uh, not worshiping these graven images yet. Yet you're to worship who? The son, right? The one who was, was to come. And in that regard, what, what he's saying to us is Jesus is not a graven image. He's not an image at all, although that's the language we use because it's the only confines by which we can really grasp as human beings. What we're, what we're trying to do is use fig... This, this takes us to the point that one of these um, references that I looked up, it says it's more figurative speech right? Why are we using figurative speech, which present truth factors? Because we, as human beings with our finite brains, need something that we can grab hold of and relate to. So the idea of, a great, of an image is used just so that we understand that it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit impressed upon each one of them 
as an image is the image of God. Each of them are the image of God. Each of them have the nature of God. They are equal. Now, this is what was cool. So this took me to looking back at um, some of the, con- the conflicts and some of the challenges that the early church had with r- clearly identifying Jesus as truly being God. And one of them was, the, was the, developed into the writing of the Nicene Creed. So I want to read this to you because in it, there's, there's some really cool statements. And one of them, I absolutely love. It's right here. It's right at the beginning. I'll, I'll reinforce it. But let me read the Nicene Creed to you because this is what they developed in order for us to understand that Jesus is God. He says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. So it's one God. And yet we've already determined it's a triune God, the we and the us, and that Jesus himself is that exact representation. So we believe, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. So there he's going to use the language that we're going to get into now. Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of light, who said that earlier, that he's the light of the light? Somebody said that. Very God of very God, I love this, begotten, not made, being of one substance, isn't that cool? With, with the Father, being of one substance with the Father. In other words, they're made of the same stuff. They're exactly the same. They are one by whom all things were made. Isn't that cool? You're quoting it with me. You obviously know this one. I know, exactly. (laughs) I know. But you know what? I got to tell you, these creeds, we should be, if you have little grandkids, I would challenge us. I wish I had known about this sooner. This is, this is something that we really need. Not that I didn't know about the Nicene Creed. It just never impressed upon me the importance of the creed. Knowing these creeds, one of the reasons I, I read, I actually have printed it out, an article about the Nicene Creed. And, and I, what I typed into my computer was, why did they write these creeds? What was the purpose of them? And he talked about it was to establish conformity of belief and by public professions of the faith to identify heretics or any disconformity within each community. Basically, the creed was written on a layman's level to give them understanding of truth factors about who their God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is. And each of these creeds addresses different, those, that triune God. And in doing that, by memorizing that, even the layman who may not know anything else about the word of God will go back to their creed and say, this is what I believe is true. And what will happen then is if any other teaching were to come at them through false teachers, false prophets, they would go, wait a minute, that doesn't line up with the creed, right? So even if that's all they knew was the creed, they knew enough. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, what that tells me is she knows nothing about the various faith systems and what they actually believe on. Well, specifically, she doesn't know the Christian faith, but she also, she doesn't, I mean, if she's a professor in a college, she should have a broader knowledge, right? I mean, that's her role is as a professor. And if she's going to stand up and make a public statement about something like this and stand in, quote, solidarity with another faith system, she should at least know the basic premises of that faith and how it either is the same or differs before she makes public statements. You don't just get on board, make a public statement, and then later go figure it out. As a teacher, if you're going to make that kind of a public stand, if I did that, you all are watching me, right? If she does that, all her students are watching her. And if she has students who are yet little baby sheep, they're going to follow her, right? Which is why people had such a big problem with this and threw such a stink. And eventually she was either let go or she quit. I don't know which, but yeah. So here we have a Nicene Creed. The creed was written for this very purpose, that even if you don't understand the intricacies of Hebrews chapter 1 and all those cross-references that go with it, if you memorize this Nicene Creed, you will have enough knowledge of that, about Jesus and God the Father and, uh, and the Holy Spirit that you will be able to stand against so much heresy that comes at you. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. I read to you up to the point that spoke about Jesus. I only got to this second little paragraph. There's still a whole other section in here about the Holy Spirit and about the church itself. And in here it mentions one holy Catholic church. Just know this, that doesn't mean the Catholic church as we speak of today. It means, it means the totality, the universal church. Okay, that on planet Earth, all of us together are holy Catholic. Okay. All right, so now... Let's move on to the next part. So now we know he became greater than the angels. He inherited a more excellent name than they. Um, to support what he did, to support that what he did revealed him as being the one who is the son and better, he then follows this statement with a quote, right? The quote is out of Psalms 2 in verse 5. What does he say then, having become better than the angels, uh, inheriting a name, that inheriting just means it's been accomplished, Okay, those are in verse 4. Having become, it means accomplished. Okay, became reality. So what was before uh, prophesied is now accomplished. That means he's become better than the angels. Not that he wasn't before, but he's always been. But now it's an accomplished work that you can... That, you, that was visualized by the people at the time and is now testified to us through the writings and through uh, the witness through the generations. So now in order to support that fact, he gives a quote. He says about, this, about uh, Jesus what? In verse 5, he makes a quote. And what is said to us? You are my son.
So that's really interesting because that, again, is what they were waiting for, was for the son to come. So now he's confirming to these Hebrew believers at this time in history and to you and I now that, in fact, Jesus is the son by quoting this and showing it as a fulfillment. You are my son and today. Now, this is interesting because today does what? What does it link it to? Yep, it links it back to you. Having become, today, I have begotten you. Okay, this is all in verse 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So it shows that there is an event at a specific time in history that now is finished that had not been finished before that. It had been prophesied in the old in Psalm chapter 2. Let me give you that reference up here. This is out of Psalm chapter 2. What were the verses? Uh, 7 to 9, right? Were the verses that we were given. That's the quote. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So very interesting. Under divine inspiration of God, he gives this quote to tell us that that he has become better than the angels, that something has been accomplished. My word prophetically is that um, my son is going to be begotten. And although he has always been the begotten son, is this indicating to us that he has now become in a reality state the begotten son? Yes, it is. So now in reality then, accomplished, today you have, have become I have begotten you, it's accomplished. So when did it get accomplished? When did he become the begotten son accomplished? At the resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection, and he sat down at the right hand, and now it's accomplished. It was always true that he has been the begotten son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when was that begotten son conceived in the heart and mind of God, the triune God? From before the foundation of the world. But now it is accomplished, having become that, He's become better than the angels. He's now inherited that more excellent name because it's a finished work. It was true before, but now it's finished. That's all that's being said here. Isn't that cool? Did you all get that when you were doing your homework? When you did your timelines, were you getting it to that place where you were beginning to see that what this is showing us is a reality truth that was the truth from time immemorial, but now it's a reality truth? Okay, so he says, now you are my son. So he quotes Psalm. So we're timelining this because having become then is linked to the word today as being when it was accomplished, that being the day he made purification and sat down at the right hand. So now he is called, he is the begotten of God. If we want to go on and finish a list here, we could do that. I'll just do it over here. He is now the accomplished. I'm going to put that in... uh, So that you understand my, my statement. He is now the accomplished begotten of God. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. 
Yes. He wasn't the begotten son, but he is now it by an accomplished work. (sighs) Right. It's the prophecy of what he would do versus what the reality is of having done it, having finished it. And what's very interesting is yet there's more yet to come, is there not? When we move down our timeline, which we aren't there yet, but when we move down this timeline, we're going to see that there is yet more concerning this begotten son that we haven't yet seen finished because he actually closes in verse 13 and says, until I do the rest of this stuff for the begotten, what is the begotten supposed to do? What does he say? Until then, and do you see the word until? Is it say that? Until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are to sit at my right hand. And then I will finish the rest of the work of the begotten son, who is now accomplished in one quality, which is the, the purification of sin. That quality of his begot, being begotten, becoming flesh. And actually, the way Kay will describe it on the video, and I don't know if she does it this week or next, but she, she actually encompasses the whole, the time from this, in these last days, she begins at the, uh, at the time of his birth all the way through this time frame right here. So he, she encompasses all of it. She says it began at the time when he became flesh. He died on the cross. And when he resurrected, that part he has accomplished at this point in history. That is the begotten son realized. Okay. Now we're waiting for the rest of the story, which if you did Revelation, you know there's a pause, right, in that timeline. And we're in that pause moment. What is the pause moment called? The church age. We're in the church age waiting until the church age, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Then God will finish the rest of this work with the begotten. Okay, cool. Yes, okay, when he, again, when he, meaning God, again, and that is controversial, that statement. How that's interpreted is really controversial. But to me, once you study this out, there's no doubt in my mind that this is speaking about his second coming. Um, a couple of the places that I went in, though, they actually used the uh, Greek and they explained how because of the structure of the way this is phrased, it cannot possibly mean what some other people are saying, which is that he's introducing another quote. Yeah. I loved that. That was so cool because what he actually does is he this particular. Could you, who was the was it worst? Who was the the writer that said it that way? Basically, he said NIV and King James versions got it right. I went, yeah, all right, because we study out of those. And when again, he brings them into the world. So it's not, he's not saying, and again, I'm going to give you another verse. He's saying, and when he again brings him. So, and when he again brings him into the world, what? 
then there's going to be some things that are going to happen. What? The angels will worship. Yeah. And that's in verse, like, um, let's see if I've got my list here. Verse 6. I was actually going to put this over here, so my, my chart's a little messed up here, but that's okay. Um, and then he's going to, and he says about his throne, what is his throne going to be? Yeah, your throne. Oh, God. Is forever. What's really interesting is it has been forever, but it is forever. Okay, and... He's going to do one more thing. You will do what? In 12. Yeah, he will roll up the heaven and the earth like a garment, and they will be changed. And we didn't go into that, but hopefully we'll, maybe we'll get into it next. They will be changed, because that, there's a great verse in Peter. That does that. Okay. All right. So when he again brings him into the world, there's going to be these things that that are going to take effect or be in full effect. We have a partial effect of him right now. That is, he is sitting on his throne. But there's going to be another thing that when again he brings him into the world, his throne will be forever. Do we know what does Jesus do when he comes back to this earth in his millennial time? He sets up his throne. And so what it's implying here is that there's another kind of throne that will be established, and that throne will be forever. And although they're equal and the same, and it's always been true he's been on the throne, and yet there's an effect of reality which is yet to come, and that is a literal kingdom with a literal throne upon this earth that he is going to, to sit and rule from. I love that. It's just showing you prophetically. So let's put this on our timeline. Um, Today I have begotten you, I have accomplished you. So um, let me grab my timeline. So he says, the angels are going to worship him. That one is hard to put on the timeline, right? But he says, um, sit at my right feet until I do what for you? Make your enemies a footstool. So what we know is that in history, there's going to be a time uh, of these seven years when God is going to make his enemies a footstool, right? Again brings, okay. When he again... brings the sun, okay? So this is going to be Jesus' second coming, right? And we know that occurs at the end of those seven years, correct? It's a clock. I love this. Okay, and then he said, yes, so then we have a 1,000-year reign right here. And that's going to be his kingdom. What'd you say? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So true. Huh? A real reality of global warming will take place during those seven years. You want to see global warming? Just wait till God gets here. <laughs> That's right. Well, and then at the end, okay, so let's put that in. Then at the end, we have, we have this earth, right? This is our earth. And what's going to happen to the earth? It's going to go global. It's warming. <laughs> Brought to an end. Rolled up, it says, right? Is the reference. And rolled up is in what verse? One what? Twelve. Okay, so he's going to roll it up, brought, bring it to an end. It's going to be that global warming that we were talking about, jokingly. Um, and, and he says, um, okay, and, you, and yours, and it was an eternal, then there's going to be the new heaven. It's not on there, but new heaven, new earth, right? And it will go on, goes on forever. And that is verse 112, I think, right? Okay. Wow. Did you love doing it on a timeline like that? Was that fun for you to see how this all unfolds? Now, you have, there are little pieces of it you kind of have to have some familiarity with. For instance, you would not know it's a seven-year time frame that God is making his enemies a footstool unless you'd studied Revelation. But, but still, you know there is something that's going to happen when he's going to make his enemies a footstool. So I'm giving you that little piece of information that it's, a, it's that seven years of the tribulation when, when uh, uh, Christ or when God is beginning to pour out his wrath upon this earth during those years. So during those last three and a half years, the wrath of God is poured out. All right, you get a partial global warming. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. So we're good there. Now, we're on, I cannot believe we've gotten through this so well. All right. Let's, let's talk about this. Then, then it says, he again begin, brings the begotten into the world. And then it says, he is the firstborn. Now, what does that mean? He's going to again. Now, what does that do? How does that connect those two references of the begotten and the firstborn? It makes them synonyms with one another, doesn't it? So that you understand then that the begotten is the firstborn and that when he brings him again into the world, something's going to happen. But he calls him, he is the firstborn. Now, what do you know about the word firstborn? When you looked at Colossians chapter 1, what did you see about the firstborn in there? Did it give you some insight about what it's referring to concerning the firstborn? It's not just talking, it's not talking about this, is it? it w so what is it talking about? Okay, all right, well, let's do, a, all right, let's do, let's do what Craig just said. Let's do a, um, let's do a word study first. He is the firstborn, so let's do the word study part. Um... Oops, I don't have my, do you have your, your key, tell me the word study number and all that. Do you have it there, Craig? No, I, I, oh. 
Okay, hold on. I'll get mine out. Does anybody else do a word study on firstborn? No. Am I the only one that did that? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, that's okay. You know, it wasn't part of the homework, but to me, it, it's the only way to get this unraveled so that you understand it is to have done that part of it as well. It is 4416. I found my notes too. Good job. Did you do a word study on it? You are so good. Tell me what you learned. Means offspring. Oh, let's see. Let's write the word itself in here. It's um, proto, P-R-O-T-O, T-O, what? K-O-S. Okay, so that's the Greek transliteration. It means, and it means what? Offspring. Oh, okay. T-O-T-O-K-O-S. Oh. Prototokos. That's funny. Sounds like tofu. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, it means offspring. What else does it mean? Preeminent. Or superior. Now, very interesting, when you have to have, make a choice of the best word for translation in your text, you have to start deciding, according to the context, what is being spoken of here. Do you think it's sp simply speaking of an offspring? What is an offspring? It's your child that you bore, right? So did God bear Jesus? Was he born of God in that God gave him birth? No, he has always been God. He is God. He, th th he has not been born in that capacity. So we know offspring is not a good understanding, right? So we move to the next one. The idea of preeminent and superior to all, does that fit? Yes, it absolutely does. So he is the firstborn that he is preeminent and superior to all. Preeminent meaning he came first, right? First is another way of saying it. All right, so now concerning that, let's go to Colossians 1.8 and let's look at what it says there. Somebody read that Colossians passage totally for me so we get a little bit of the whole picture. Do you have your pages handy? Okay, firstborn of all creation, keep moving. You're not done. Is there any more there? Oh, whoops. Oh, okay. I need more than that. Somebody go into the passage because it's all the way down in 18. Okay. Okay, now does that line up with what we've seen so far? That he created all things and through him things were created. So he's equal to God the Father in that they both created. Okay, keep moving. Okay, so now he's preeminent. He's the supreme. He's that which holds things, okay? Oh, okay, so he is the beginning, the first. He's the head of the church. 
the firstborn and the firstborn from the dead. Now, tell me, what do we have on our timeline up here that uh, that actually supports that he, we are speaking that he is the firstborn from the dead? Resurrection. The resurrection. So he is the firstborn, and you can add in there from the dead. Why? Because today I have begotten thee, and when is the today? That resurrection. When he resurrected, he became, today I've begotten you, and he is the firstborn. I'm just going to add that part on the end and put a parenthesis around it, from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. And that is in 1, um, 6, right? He is the firstborn, or is it one eight? Oh, I'm not in Colossians. I mean back in Hebrews. Sorry, I switched locations, so I'm sorry, Lois. Follow me. <laughs> I'm blind. <laughs> it is one six. Okay, good. So now what we see is today I have begotten you, and he refers to him as the firstborn, and that firstborn then is a reference back to the fact that he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first to have been re uh, resurrected. He's first as in first place and the first one who did it. And what will we do then later? What will happen for us? We become, in, and in, Col in uh, Corinthians, it says, and each in their order receive their resurrection. Jesus Christ, the firstborn, then us, the church, and then what will happen at, and then comes the end, is what that passage says. And in that reference, then comes the end is actually a, a, a kind of an obscure statement about what Daniel said in his passages where God said to Daniel, Daniel, go on your way, and at the end, you will receive your resurrection. So when does Daniel and his group of people receive their resurrection? At the end, when, God, when Christ has accomplished his work, he is going to come back. And by the way, when he comes again, he brings with him the church, comes with him, right? And, he said, and then uh, when all these things are accomplished, then as he sets this up, then Daniel and his receive their resurrection, Daniel and those of the Old Testament, basically, the Old Testament saints, receive their resurrection. And so uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 says that each in their order, Christ the firstborn, firstborn from the dead, us his, his church, and then comes the end, which is when, when we see in uh, Revelation, he talks about when he returns, I think it's in 19, and he sets up his throne, it says, and then there's a resurrection at that point as well. So resurrections occur kind of in parts. Each one, each group has their own resurrection according to God's determined plan and timing. We all get resurrected in, who are in faith, but we each get it in our own order according to God's plan of order. Isn't that cool? Very exciting. Have a resurrection at that point when Daniel and his friend, the, the tribulation saints, are resurrected, and it even says so in detail in that passage. It says those who have been did not receive the mark of the beast, those who were martyred for their faith or, or beheaded for their faith, I think it says. So they're actually listed in, in detail. Daniel gives you the other piece where it says you wait until the end, and then you will be resurrected. So, wow. So we got an eschatology lesson with this, didn't we? 
Okay. Yes. Yes, so that's why he gets his resurrection right here. So they are going to be resurrected. Yep. Right here. Oh, yeah, they're really close. It's like boom, boom, boom. Unless we're resurrected back here. We can be resurrected here and receive our bodies here. Then we come back with him already in our bodies. Our resurrection may be here. It may be back here. This is where the argument is. We don't know at what point the church gets their resurrection. Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? I believe it's at least mid-trib. Probably I still stand on pre-trib. I think before the seven years, we, the church, are resurrected. That is my understanding. But I would not argue about it. If you choose to go mid, that's okay. But he will not be beyond the, beyond the mid-trip because these last three and a half years are the gods pouring out of wrath. Daniel and his people. And the holy city of Jerusalem, it's, that's right. It is all about God finishing the rest of the begotten's work. There is a partial work of the begotten that is finished, which is the, which is the uh, purification of sins has been made at the cross. And he is resurrected. Now he is waiting, he says over here, to sit and wait until I make, where is it, did I say that? Until I make your... Here it is. Making until I've made your enemies a footstool, and until then you're waiting. But the firstborn from the dead has been accomplished. The work for the church has been accomplished. The believers in him of his first coming. The rest will come later. So you got a little bit of eschatology work in here today, which is kind of fun. But what's more important is what you found in in doing your homework this week is who is the son, and why is he better than the angels? So tell me, why is he better? He made them and he made all things. What else? Isn't that enough? No, that's true. Okay, tell you what, let's go through and do a uh, paragraph by, since we've got, we still have half an hour. I cannot believe I got through this. I did not think I was going to get through it. You guys were so cooperative and so good, and I'm so happy because that makes, at least for the recording purposes, it's real systematic. It went, it flowed very nicely. We didn't hit any real hiccups, or I just did an outstanding job of explaining. I don't know which. (laughs) Anyway, okay. So now let's go back to Hebrews. I'm not patting myself on the back on this one. I'm telling you, I struggled. God was so good. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1 then. Let's go through and outline it. How many of you made paragraph flows of thought so that you understand how this author is handling this? Good. So Craig's going to be my right-hand guy. You get to sit at at the right hand of God right now, not me, but God, and you get to interpret for us as we're going as we're going through this. Help us stay on t- on task. What we know is when we are titling a chapter and paragraphs, then we want our paragraphs to to support what our chapter title or theme is. Correct? Our ta- our theme for this chapter is that Jesus, or the, in this case, the Son, is greater than the angels. So what we want to do is we want to go paragraph by paragraph and say, why is Jesus better than the angels? How is it portrayed to us through the author's flow of thought? So what do we see in verses 1 through 4? 
Okay, and therefore, in in conclusion, it, sp- it speaks of him in verse four as being better and more excellent. What? His name is more excellent, right? What is his name? The Son. Well, in this passage, the Son, right? So why is he better than the angels in verses 1 to 4? Because he's the Son, right? A more excellent name. Correct? All right. Now go to 5 to 9. Why is he more excellent there? He quotes a verse to support that he's better than, correct? He quotes a couple of Old Testament passages in, in Psalm 2 and also in 2 Samuel 7, which we didn't even touch on. But in those statements, he's given two titles. What are they? The, the begotten and the firstborn. So what makes him better is what he accomplished, right? And he accom- in the, uh, the literal accomplishment of it, he became the begotten. And he became the firstborn from the dead, right? So how would you title then all the information there is concerning that? There you go. <laughs> That's pretty simple, isn't it? Because he's the begotten and the firstborn. And, and if you want to add more just for fun, you can say, and so he's been exalted to his throne, right, by that resurrection. He's God and King. And you, you might could even do that as well. The only reason I kind of liked including in my flow of thought that he is the begotten and the firstborn is because those are titles that are actually, I, I give him identifying qualities, which you can develop more from your study, which we've done. Now that we've done that, will you ever look at the begotten or the firstborn in Hebrews differently? I mean, it will always be a better, fuller understanding of it, right? That it was always true from time immemorial he has been the begotten right and he has always in the mind of God been the firstborn from the dead but it's now been accomplished and that's what Hebrews is teaching us here that it's an accomplished thing okay so he is the the begotten and the firstborn and exalted to his throne through his resurrection okay then uh 10 to 14 how is he described there's a new a new title given to him there And what is the subject matter going on in these verses? What's the most of the information about? The heavens and the earth, which he did what? He created. So how is he he described? What is the title given to him in verse 10? Lord. And what is a Lord? Master over something, right? The ruler over it. Why is he the master and the ruler over it? Because he created it. (laughs) Very good. So you can put on there in 10 to 14 what for a title of that segment? Okay. Okay, he is the creator. Okay, so why is he better than the angels? Because he's the creator, the Lord. Or the Lord, the creator. One of, either way. And they are just ministering. If you want to get the rest of the thing, because and they're just ministering. And as a matter of fact, very interestingly, the contrast here with them being ministering servants for those who will inherit salvation. This is another one that we probably could touch on real quickly. What is it talking about those who will inherit salvation? Is that talking about people who are going to become believers along the way? Or is it talking about something else yet future? Those who are going to rule and reign in eternity then. So it's speaking about something in the future yet, is it not? So 
that what this does, and not, I'm not prepared to talk on it, but I can at least explain in, in part to you. There are three verb tenses for the word salvation in Scripture. Does anybody know what they are? There are th- you know this, Celeste. There are three verb tenses for the word salvation in Scripture. So it's justification, sanctification, and glorification. So which of those three uh, words do you think is being spoken of here? The glorification. He's talking about that day that they will inherit. Because think of it in the context of what's being said is, have they already been justified, those he's speaking to? Yes. And he's speaking about these angels, the accomplished work, and he's talking about those who will inherit salvation. So those he's speaking to, he's not, he's not speaking about they're getting justified. And they are certainly in the process of sanctification. He's going to talk a great deal of that on that later on. But here he's making a statement to a future event of glorification that they will inherit it. Right. Well, and if you think of that, this deliverance is going to occur during all of this time frame here, which will be the glorification time when they receive their glorified bodies, ultimately at the end of all of it. The process of those seven years, Jesus establishes his throne. They receive their new bodies. They're glorified. That's their glorification. Okay. I don't know about you guys, but I feel really victorious. <laughs> Do you feel good about it? Is there any questions? Any other insights there or problems? Yes, Carrie. The thing that struck me when I was looking up the words for radiance and the exact representation mm-hmm. is that um, that the particular three words are used only once. Wow. Only once, only in the instance. You know, so it's, it's more significant. 